Well, amen. It is a joy to be with you this morning and to open this book and to worship with you. And if you would find 2 Corinthians chapter 8, the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 8, we have one verse that will serve as our sermon text this morning. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, hear the word of the living God. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word, and let's ask for his help once again. God, we do come needy, and I add my prayer to the many prayers that have been prayed this morning. We do not want persuasive words of wisdom, of man-centered wisdom, but we pray that this word would come in demonstration of the spirit and of power so that our faith would not rest on the words of a man, but they would rest, our faith would rest upon you. Holy Spirit, we need you. Holy Spirit, we need you to come and to put this word deep in us so that it might grow and There might be a great harvest of everlasting fruit. So we're asking you now, oh God, to come. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there is an old hymn that from time to time I have uh, often quoted from this pulpit. And the entire hymn, it's typically one stanza, but the entire hymn is really worth our attention and maybe one day our singing. We've never sang it. But I want to quote a few lines for you as we think about the theme of the last two sermons, last week and this week. It was written by uh, William Gadsby, who is a Baptist pastor from the early 1800s. The gospel is good news indeed to sinners deep in debt. The man who has no works to plead will thankful be For it to know that when he's not to pay, his debts are all discharged will make him blooming. Look as may and set his soul at large. No news can be compared with this to men oppressed with sin who know what legal bondage is and labor, but in vain. How gladly does the prisoner hear what gospel has to tell. Tis perfect love that casts out fear and brings him from his cell. The last stanza. The man that feels his guilt abound and knows himself unclean will find the gospel's joyful sound is welcome news to him. Well, the gospel is good news indeed. And according to this book, the scriptures, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. That's Romans 1, 16. And Paul also calls the gospel the word of the cross in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And he says that the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. And in that very same chapter in 1 Corinthians 1, Paul says that God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Well, because we believe this here at Grace Church each week from this pulpit, the gospel is proclaimed. And today, as has been said many times in the pastoral prayer and in corporate prayer today, right now, as God's people, we need to be reminded of the good news. We need to hear again that God is rich in mercy towards us in Christ. We need to hear that because of his great love with which he has loved us, he's made us alive together with Christ. And we need to be reminded today, right now, that 
as his people, he has seated us with him in the heavenly places. It's from Ephesians 2. Now think about this gathering, a corporate people, a Christ-following, covenanted-together faith family, each week coming together to worship the one true God. And this people, us, we need the good news today. I could ask if we polled everyone here, how was your week? Perhaps a, a week that's been filled with many joys, many trials, perhaps, besetting sins, anxieties, perhaps loneliness, fears, unbelief, maybe indifference to the things of God, lukewarmness, self-righteousness, depression, perhaps real sorrows, death. We've experienced that this week. So don't we as God's people today, right now, in this gathering, need to hear of Christ's love to us in the gospel? Well, the answer is yes. We need to hear that because we are united to him by faith, we are not rejected, but forever accepted in the beloved. And nothing is able to snatch us out of his hand. So the fields of his gospel promises that we find in this book, all one for us in Christ, is ripe for the taking, ripe for the harvest, for the gleaning. And perhaps some of you are joining us today for the first time. We've got some visitors among us. Perhaps you've never heard the good news, or perhaps, like some, this might be your 104th time of hearing the gospel and sitting under it. Well, I've prayed for you that today, under the hearing of Gospel 105, that you would put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that you would not leave today until you close with Christ. I want you to know and to believe that you would find the Gospel's joyful sound welcome news like that hymn. Well, we planned the first two sermons of uh, 2018, last week and this week, to have a very specific focus on the truths of the gospel. Last week, Pastor Nathan walked us through uh, a very uh, dense passage in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4 mainly, but other texts there. And today we're going to join the Apostle Paul again in the next book over in 2 Corinthians 8 to consider a very rich passage. Well, I want us to consider what Paul places before the church at Corinth in this one text. It's namely the gospel. And my aim is very simple. It's like Peter's to stir you up. It was prayed in our corporate prayer meeting to stir you up and to stir me up by way of reminder. And we need the Holy Spirit to do that, to awaken us. Well, we will see this morning that Paul puts before the church at Corinth the beauty of Christ as he appeals to them to be generous, to give. Well, look with me again at our passage, that one passage there in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Now, our main consideration is this one text, but I want us to understand the context that Paul is writing in. He's speaking to the Corinthian church in chapter 8 about an offering, about giving monetarily. As Paul went on his missionary journeys, he appealed to Gentile churches often to take up an offering, a collection for the poor back in Jerusalem. Now, Romans 15, and we won't go there, he speaks about this, that Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Well, what's happened in Jerusalem? If we go all the way back to the beginning of Acts, we have Pentecost and then the conversion of thousands upon thousands. And so you can imagine right there, ostracized people, family bonds broken, businesses probably affected by this social and economic hardships, excommunication, it would have led to real poverty in the church in the early days. And so Paul takes it upon himself in his travels 
to orchestrate and has others with him, as we see here in this passage, to get an offering to bring it back to the poor in Jerusalem. So that's the, the, the context as Paul's writing this. And as he writes in chapter 8, he seeks to stir up the Corinthians by placing before them the example of the churches in Macedonia. That's what he's saying in the first few verses of chapter 8. In verse 2, Paul tells them that in a great deal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. Speaking about the churches in Macedonia. And in verse 3, they gave of their own accord. They even begged Paul. Paul says, with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. Paul says this is the grace of God. Out of their deep poverty, these churches gave abundantly. Real sacrificial giving. They gave of themselves first, it says there in verse 5, and this, not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves. And out of the giving of themselves, the uh, sacrificial giving Flowed. So Paul's holding out to this church at Corinth a real, tangible example, a real expression of giving. Look, these people were poor and they gave out of their poverty. Look at this expression of generosity. Look at their deep poverty, but their love for others. You want to see self sacrifice, Paul says to the Corinthians? Do you want to see what great love for others looks like? Paul says, the churches in Macedonia, look what they have done. They even begged us to give like the, the widows might. They gave more than all. They gave out of their poverty. But Paul knows, Paul knows as great as this example is, and it is a great example, that there is one who is the greatest example when it comes to sacrificial, generous giving. That great example with a capital E, the Lord Jesus Christ. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, right in the middle, almost like a parenthesis, if you read verse 8 and verse 10, it flows perfectly. But right in the middle of those two sentences, in a parenthesis, Paul gives them Christ. He's holding Christ up to this church as the plumb line of generous, sacrificial giving. He's trying to get under them. He's appealing to them. He's not commanding them. He even says that. But he's appealing to them in love to be generous in this offering. And as he's appealing to them, he speaks verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Have you ever seen a plumb bob? I know Rick has. He's even probably brought it here and shown some of you. But a, a plumb bob is a construction item. It's typically used in construction. It's an instrument. Very simple. It has a weight at one end, a string. And these are suspended to find the vertical reference of an item, the, the, the vertical point, to find out if something is plumb, a vertical straightness of something. Well, Christ is that plumb line for the Christian life. And Paul, in this great parenthesis, is putting Christ before them as the great example of generous giving. It's the incomprehensible, if you will, generosity of our Lord. Well, many of you know that Jay, our 16-year-old son, works hard in the summers. He's been doing some mowing and some landscaping. And he's been wise with his money, saved most of his hard work. And he's put this money away. And let's just say... That without any parental manipulation or any request from us, he calls up Pastor Brian and says, I love you and I want to take you to dinner. I'll pay. And so off they go to the Cracker Barrel because we know that's where Brian would want to go. And he pays for his meal. And Brian would probably say, it's very generous of you, Jay. It's very gracious of you. And we would probably all say the same thing. Very generous for that young man to do that. Now let's say that the week after this, without any parental manipulation or any requests from us, Rick out there at the door handing bulletins to everyone that comes in and Jay next to him hands everyone a $100 bill as they come in, right? So bulletin, welcome, Jay, love you, here's $100. Everyone, visitors, 
kids, everyone gets a $100 bill. How much more generous would that be? Now, let's just say that later on you found out, you didn't know this, but it was everything he had in his bank account. And he was happy to do it. He's been saving for years. And he gives everyone here $100. We would say, how much more generous is that gift? Now, take this passage. And when we think about Christ and what Paul is holding out to them and to us here, we have an incomprehensible generosity. We have the truest and deepest definition of sacrificial love. The eternally rich Son of God stooping low to give Himself to those in greatest need. That those spiritually impoverished people through this poverty would gain everything because they gain Him. Well, we're going to break this text up very briefly in three points. Christ was rich, Christ became poor, and we, through his poverty, become rich. We're just going to break the passage up as it's broken up here. Well, let's be stirred up together as we consider, number one, Christ was rich. We've already noted that Paul's holding Christ out to the Corinthian church as the greatest example of giving, sacrificial giving, love wrought generosity. Look at him, Paul says. Look at this love. Look at this giving. Look at this gift. What grace. Let's consider him this way. What does Paul mean when he says that Christ was rich? Now, we all have notions of what it means to have riches. The world has notions of what riches are. What does it mean when he says he was poor, became poor? We all have notions of what poverty is, and the world will tell us the same. But what's Paul mean by these things? Well, Paul is referring to who Christ is and what he has done, what he has accomplished. He's referring to the eternally rich son of God becoming poor in his humility in the incarnation, his life, his death. This is the same riches to poverty plunge that we see in other passages like Philippians 2. When speaking of Christ, Paul himself again in Philippians 2, who, although existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Do you hear in Philippians 2 what Paul is saying here? Though he was rich, existing in the form of God. Though he was rich, equality with God. Is Paul speaking in monetary terms here? Is, is this economics that, that Christ was rich and became poor? No, he's speaking in terms of who the Son of God is. Jesus Christ is the eternal God. He is God. He's speaking of Christ's eternal glory. So whatever our definitions of riches are, they all melt away in comparison to what the Bible says, who the Son of God actually is. John 1 tells us that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Hebrews 1 tells us that it was Jesus through whom also God made the world. The Son of God, the wisdom of God in Proverbs 8, creating worlds. And He was daily His Father's delight. What about John 17.5, that high priestly prayer that we're familiar with when Jesus says, Now, Father, glorify Me together with Yourself. Listen with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Jesus Christ is the eternal God. He's speaking in this passage of his preexistence. He's no mere man. Jesus is not created. He's fully and truly God and fully and truly man, one person, same time. 
He is God. And this passage, as we think about his riches, it pulls back the curtain on the triune God, doesn't it? It it pulls back. It gives us a glimpse into the Godhead, the relationship that God has with himself. God, the son for ages and ages in eternity past, enjoying perfect, harmonious, intimate fellowship with his father. First Timothy one calls God the blessed God or the happy God. He's the happiest. He's full of joy within himself. And for all eternities, he's had happy fellowship with himself, the triune God. It was a relationship of full delight and love. No one knows the son except the father, Jesus said, and no one knows the father except the son. Jesus Christ is the mighty Christ from time eternal that we sing about. Now think about other descriptions in this book about Christ being rich. Maybe Hebrews 1 comes to mind. He's the radiance of God's glory. Perhaps you think about Christ holding and sustaining everything by the word of his power. That's rich. Isaiah 40, perhaps that comes to mind. All those descriptions in Isaiah 40, he's named all the stars and not one of them is missing. Kids, when you go home tonight, I know it's cold outside, maybe you can look through the window, but look up at the stars, the millions and trillions of stars. Jesus has named those and not one of them is missing. I can't even find my car keys most days But not one star, one star in the sky is missing is what that passage says. In Genesis 14, Melchizedek and his blessing for Abraham calls God the possessor of heaven and earth. He's the rightful owner of it all. The sovereign creator. Meditate on that. Meditate on that. He is the possessor of heaven and earth. Now that is rich. The Son is the Father's delight and pleasure. The Son of God, the God of glory, the one whom all things came into being is rich beyond all splendor. And this one, our Lord, the eternally rich Son of God, so much more could be said. Heaven's favorite becomes poor. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though He was rich, yet for your sake became poor. So number two, let's consider briefly Christ becoming poor. What do you mean, Paul? Well, the one who is infinitely rich takes the form of a bondservant. Where did he do this? Well, we just got done walking through the Advent season, which is us considering what Christ has done, knowing that he's coming back for the second Advent. But he came at the incarnation, didn't he? Luke 2, but the angel said to them, do not be afraid for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people for today in the city of David, there has been born for you a savior who is Christ the Lord or Galatians 4, 4. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who are under the law, that we might receive adoptions as sons. Was Jesus's poverty defined by being born into a poor family? Was he poor because he was born in a feeding trough? Was his poverty defined by the fact that Joseph was only a carpenter and wasn't in middle management down the street? No, Christ becoming poor wasn't owing to anything that Mary and Joseph had or didn't have or their net worth. But it was bound up in God himself stooping low in great condescension from the highest heaven to robe himself in human flesh and to live among those he created. I'm always astounded by the contrasts in Scripture when we think about this. The infinite creator of the universe in Genesis 1 steps into his creation. Or the God who dwells in unapproachable light in 1 Timothy 6 
comes to earth and feels the warmth of the sun on his face. Or the all-sufficient God in Genesis 17 is born into the dependency of a baby to his mother. Or the God of heavens in Psalm 136 walking on the earth. Or the God who never sleeps in Psalm 121 napping in his mother's arms. It's God most high as he is often called kneeling down to wash Not one pair, but 12 pairs of caked on mud, dirt, smelly feet. The feet of his friends in John 13. It's the God who is not served by human hands, becoming the suffering servant. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and like one from whom men hid their face. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. He became poor and in the cross, the cross, the peak of his humiliation found As an appearance of a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He came all the way from the eternal realms of glory that are unimaginable, stepping into the world of his creatures in full, loving obedience to his Father to be executed on a cross. It's always in the blessed communion of his Father If you just read through the Gospels and in that moment on the cross, forsaken by his father, having become a curse as he who knew no sin became sin and absorbed the full onslaught of his father's holy wrath against it. He was everything that has been promised. He was the promised one, the sin bearer, the Messiah, the fulfillment He was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. One commentator said, From highest heaven He descended to Calvary and the grave. None was richer than He, and none became poorer than He. This was His poverty. His willing, voluntary poverty. His self-impoverishment, if you will. William Howe, he's an Anglican minister, and he's penned this hymn, and we've sang it a few times here. But listen to the contrast, just in a few verses, of his poverty and his riches. So good. Who is this so weak and helpless, child of lowly Hebrew maid, rudely in a stable sheltered, coldly in a manger laid? Tis the Lord of all creation who this wondrous path has trod. He is Lord from everlasting and to everlasting God. Who is this that hangs there dying while the rude world scoffs and scorns, numbered with the malefactors, torn with nails and crowned with thorns? Tis our God who lives forever mid the shining ones on high in the glorious golden city reigning everlastingly. No, his poverty is not based on monetary terms. He stooped low from the eternal riches and he took the form of a bondservant, veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Well, we can only marvel at the distance of this condescension. The measure of such distance is an unquantifiable measure of love. We can measure the distance from wall to wall. We can measure this pulpit. We can even measure the distance between the sun and the moon and the moon and the earth. And I don't know how you do that, but it can be done. But there is no human measuring instrument that can measure the distance of the eternal Son of God stooping low to come and rescue the people the Father gave him. Does that affect you? That it can't be measured. Oh, what love for us, beloved. Think of the sermon series that we just walked through all last year through the Old Testament. The New Testament is coming. 
Certainly the story of redemption began in eternity past. We know that. But our first reading of it, three chapters in from Genesis, lost and ruined by the fall. And there in verse 15, we learn from the very first book, three chapters in, that there would be one who would come from the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the snake. First glimpse. And all the way through, he's the true and better Abraham. Christ is the true and better Moses who will accomplish and lead the spiritual exodus, the departure at the cross for his people. He's the true and better David, the one that David pointed to. He's the resurrected king, the one the prophets spoke of, all the types and shadows pointed to. Everything in the Old Testament that was promised about this one, he came. This thread running through that section of our Bible, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, the promised one, shows up in Bethlehem, born of a virgin, the Word became flesh. And it's amazing, it shouldn't amaze us, that in Luke, when we get to Luke and we meet those characters, Zacharias, John the Baptist's dad, Simeon, Anna, Mary, that when all this begins to unfold and Christ has come, that they all break out into these songs that they sing. Zechariah says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for He has visited us and accomplished redemption for His people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us. Because of the tender mercy of our God with which the sunrise from on high will visit us. Malachi 4 speaks of the Son of Righteousness who comes with healing in His wings. All that was promised in the Old Testament has now come. He lived and He died and He rose again. He became poor. Well, thirdly, let's consider we through His poverty become rich. Paul says, yet for your sake, very personal, so that you through his poverty, again, very personal. So as we consider this last portion, we see Christ's purposes, don't we? In the gospel, Paul says to the Corinthians, for your sake, he's come to make impoverished sinners rich. To make us as rich as he is rich. And what of this poverty that humanity finds itself in. We just talked about the first book, Genesis, where the lost and ruined by the fall happens. And from the very beginning, when our first parents ate that fruit and sin entered in against a holy God, all humanity headfirst dove into eternal spiritual poverty. The wages of sin is death. The Bible says there's none good, no, not one. We have rebelled against our Creator. This poverty. The sinner has a bad record, which is a legal term. We've sinned against His law. We're not going to do what you tell us. And we have bad hearts. It's a moral problem. And God must punish and condemn sinners because He's holy. And so sinners need a divine rescue. We need something, we need someone rather to rescue us. Given the severity of the crime and the reality of our sin, it can only be God Himself that rescues us. And so Christ has come for impoverished sinners. He is the only way back to God. Oh, to stir your heart now, beloved. Christian, do you remember your plight? Do you remember the days when you were far off from God, living as an enemy to Him? Do you remember those days when you were dead in your trespasses and sins, no spiritual heartbeat? Do you remember when you formally walked according to the course of this world as a son of disobedience? Do you remember the poverty 
of living in the lust of your flesh, making your home there. Do you remember indulging, as Ephesians 2 says, in the desires of your mind? Do you remember when you had no hope and you were without God in this world, working hard to make your way to God and failing over and over? Do you remember when your treasure was you? Do you remember being by your very nature a child of wrath, being foolish and spending your life in malice and envy and loving the treason and desiring, if you could, to reach up to heaven and pull him off his throne, happily smiling, saying, who made you to rule over us? The spiritual poverty. No affections for righteousness. No desire for anything even remotely related to holiness. But deep down in you, a poor, indebted sinner. No works to plead deep in debt. And do you remember when in this spiritual bankruptcy with nothing to commend you to God, when the good news was preached to you and it became good news, that your eye, like the hymn writer wrote, diffused a quickening ray and you awoke and the dungeon flamed with light. The chains fell off, your heart was free and you turned from everything and ran to the Savior. You turned from your sin and forsook it and you were captivated by Him and you followed after Him. Do you remember when Christ became precious to you? And you set your love on him because he loved you first. When your affections change from loving sin to loving righteousness. Do you remember, like Christian in the Pilgrim's Progress, the burden of sin falling from your back when you came to the cross and beheld his glory? Now, here's what I'm not trying to do. I am not trying to get you to go back to a stake in the ground and hope in that. And I'm certainly... I know we have tender-hearted people in our congregation. I am certainly not trying to get you to freak out because you can't remember all those details. Praise God for that. But like Paul in Ephesians 2, look, God's economy is God's economy. All of our conversions look different, but that miracle that happened when Christ became precious to us and the gospel became good news, that happened for all of us. When we really did sing his mercy is more in the depths of our heart. That's what I'm after. The gospel is good news. He came to save sinners for our sake, Paul says. For our sake, he became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich. Christian, God loves you. He loves you. You are beloved by God. Jesus loves you. He gave his only son for you. Romans 8, he did not spare his own son. What a gift. So we can say, Paul says, for your sake, it's okay to say, and you should, and we should, God loves you. He loves you in Christ. Amy Carmichael, who has helped me so much with the love of God, wrote a poem called A Carol in her book, Towards Jerusalem, I'll just read the last stanza. But when he died upon the rood, the king of glory, he, there was no star, there was no good, nor any majesty, for a diadem was only scorn, a twisted, torturing crown of thorn, and it was all for me. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake, he became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich. Well, what does that mean to become rich? Is it, is it what we see on TV, all these health and wealth preachers saying that by believing in Jesus, your bank account will grow or by believing in Jesus, you'll never be sick again. It doesn't mean that if you believe in Jesus, you'll have no more problems. We just said that if we were to take a poll about our week, it's a mess. Life is real. We are made spiritually rich, eternally rich. And we know that the gospel did not end at Calvary because if it did, it would not be good news. 
We would be pitied. Our faith would be in vain. But because he humbled himself by becoming obedient, God highly exalted him. Sacrifice accepted. Holiness vindicated. And bestowed on him the name that is above every name. He is exalted, risen, enthroned at the right hand of the Father, again delighting in the enjoyment of his Father face to faith, in face to face, rather, intimate communion. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. What does it mean to be made rich? Well, in our union with Christ, by faith we are made alive together with Christ and raised up with him in the heavenly places. We learn from Romans 8 that we are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. We've been sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. We have peace with God. If you go to Ephesians 1 and pull that treasure chest open, we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Beloved, we are made rich because in the gospel we are given God himself. Christ suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. We get God and the world doesn't understand this. Give me the world and you can have your Jesus. And we say Christ is better. We won't turn there, but I would encourage you to go read Hebrews 11. Especially at the end, we think about the riches of Christ. It's a good picture of what happens to people who know they are rich in Christ. Stoned, sawn in two, tempted, put to death with the sword, afflicted, ill-treated, mockings, scourgings, chains, property plundered. They gained approval through their faith. God was better. They looked to the lasting city. The gospel freed them to pursue the abundant riches of Christ. We are rich because Christ is our portion forever. We are rich because in the gospel we get him. Well, two quick applications and we will be finished. And it's really for all of us. Two specific people in mind. Because in this world there's really only two types of people. Those who are Christians and those who are not. Those who have faithed Christ and those who haven't. And the gospel is very personal. It's deeply personal. I can't believe for you. For your sake. For you. The gospel is personal. Well, for the Christian, and there's probably a better way to say this, but take care. One instruction, take care to not grow weary of the gospel. As Christians, again, a better way of saying this probably, as Christians, let us never tire of hearing the gospel. I probably like you, if you've got kids, especially when the kids were younger, they would bring the books. Daddy, will you read me a book? You know, the little 10 page board book or a Dr. Seuss book. And so you'd read the book all the way through. And then three minutes later, they're bringing you the same book and you're reading it again. You've got, we got a whole shelf full of books, but I get the same book. An hour later, daddy, will you read me a book? Okay, pick a book. Here comes same book. And what happens once upon a time? And so when they're not looking, you're like, I've already talked to my children about this, so it's okay. But you're, you're skipping four pages, right? And you make something up on page 10 that fits, but doesn't, it's not the story. And then before long, you know, you start at the very beginning, you drop, you, you look what's on the floor and then you're at the end. But see, we can do the same thing with the gospel, can't we? Jesus came, he died, he lived, he rose again. That's the gospel. True that those are the tenets of the gospel. But we can become so familiar with the gospel that we become unfamiliar. There's no depth or love. We become cold and indifferent. And so perhaps this morning you, you are cold or indifferent to the gospel or you feel a lack of love to Christ. And I'm pointing at myself. Well, the, the, the prescription is not outside of the gospel. 
So, so we must still go to the gospel. The, the prayer that we prayed, oh God, that your word would abide in us. So, so maybe a very practical encouragement would be to, to take the kindling of a gospel promise, 2 Corinthians 8, 9, or maybe it's Romans 8, or maybe it's the whole book of Romans, and spend time there and, and pray that the Holy Spirit would light that kindling on fire. The son of righteousness would, would melt. Have you ever noticed how amazing it is when the sun comes out on pavement? I watched it yesterday. Within 10 minutes in the front of my house, most of the ice was gone. It refreezes. The son of righteousness will melt our hearts to love if we sit with him like Mary. Not Martha busy, but Mary sitting at his feet, listening to every word. So I pray for you and pray for me. Let us take care to not grow weary of the gospel. And finally, to... The non-Christian, maybe you would even say, I don't think I'm a Christian. Well, Paul says that the church here in Corinth, they knew the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ for, you know. So my question for you, do you know this grace? Not do you know about Jesus, but do you know Christ? John 17, three, this is eternal life that they may know you not know about you, know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Perhaps you have your health or your bank account is full or young people, you have your life ahead of you. And maybe you're faithful coming to church, but you really don't get it. Or, or, or maybe you've been raised in a Christian home. Well, if you're banking on those riches, those are false riches. And this passage holds out to us the exclusivity of Christ. There is no other way. The only way to be made eternally rich is through the poverty of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's through the gospel. Jesus himself says that he's the way. So anything else, any other way that you're trying or anything else that you're hoping in is false and will lead to destruction. And so if you live this way, you're just you're just paying off your debt with a credit card and then that credit card with another. And so you never get out of it. You're just full of debt. We know the wages of sin is death. So if, to have a favorable meeting with God without Christ is to not have a favorable meeting with God. And so the question we all have to answer is the same question that Jesus asked his disciples. We, we all have to answer this question. Who do people say that I am? Or what think you of Christ? Well, that's the question. So friend, young person, what do you think of Christ? Who do people say that I am? Jesus said. Now, Peter said that you're the Christ, the son of the living God. He answered correctly. And then Jesus said that he didn't figure this out on his own. That God had revealed it to him. So, friend, what think you of Christ? Was he crazy? Was he just another good teacher, perhaps just a prophet? He certainly was a prophet, but just a prophet? Did he, did he die for this foolish vision or was he everything that he said he was was he the eternal God that truly came to save his people from their sins is he the resurrection and the life is he the only one who can bring you everlasting happiness and joy well John Newton wrote that great poem what think you of Christ is the test to try both your state and your scheme you cannot be right in the rest unless you think rightly of him so perhaps even in this moment I have prayed that the Holy Spirit would awaken you to your great need and perhaps now you you sense the weight of his majesty and you you see deep down in the the heart I cannot run. There is a God. I have sinned against him. Where is the mercy? I'm undeserving. I'm ruined. What do I do? And I will tell you no more than what this book would tell you. Repent and believe in the gospel.
Repent. Turn away from your sin. Turn away from you. Agree with God, with what he says about you as a ruined sinner, and run by faith. Believe, cling, trust, and all that Christ is for you. Do you remember in Luke 18, the Pharisee and the tax collector, the Pharisee said as he prayed, I'm so glad I'm not like those other sinners. Tax collector beating his chest. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. That's faith and repentance in a very dense form. In Luke, I have been amazed as I've walked in my quiet time with Jesus. Jesus will often say, you know this, follow me. The Christian life is about following Christ. Repentance and faith, follow me. When you follow Christ, you're not following you or other things, but you're following Christ. What does it look like to follow Christ? Follow Christ. Love what he loves. Know what he says. Obey him. Love him. So if you've not followed Christ today, follow Christ by faith. Well, the Bible says that when the wicked forsake their way and the unrighteous his thoughts, God will have compassion and will abundantly pardon The man that feels his guilt abound and knows himself unclean will find the gospel's joyful sound is welcome news to him. The very last, the very last verse of chapter nine. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Isn't that the application of applications? Praise and gratitude for Christ's saving work. It's not the debtor's ethic. Oh, God, I need to pay you back. It's thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Well, let's pray together.